The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to read to you today from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 and beginning with verse 7. And before we begin reading, you'll notice that this is contrasting Old Testament worship to New Testament worship. And he says in Hebrews 8, 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Sometimes we refer to Old Testament worship as the old law service as if there was something wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with it because God ordained that form of worship. The problem was with us. Notice it says in verse 7 and 8, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been, fault, then should no place have been sought for a second for finding fault with them. The fault's not with God, the fault was with us. We could not keep the law. We could not do enough to make ourselves acceptable in the sight of God. And that's why we rejoice to know that before the world began, God made us acceptable before Him in Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, to be a part of that group of people that had special revelation from God, all that was required is that you be a descendant of Abraham. That is, that you be an Israelite. That you be among those 12 tribes of Israel. God chose a particular group of people not based on inward spiritual qualities, but based on their identity as a nation of people and descendants of those people. Those were the ones that God gave revelation to. Now you and I understand that if a person's not born again, they will not have a desire to honor God in keeping His commandments. Nonetheless, 
God gave those Ten Commandments to that particular nation of people. But we read in this that God made an adjustment, if you will, in New Testament worship. And notice what he says in uh, verse 10. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel's after those days, saith the Lord. Now this is speaking of the gospel church age, which has now been here for approximately 2,000 years. And however they were to worship God then, or rather whatever comprised the body of the church then, is the same that should comprise it today. He says, here's how it's going to be. Here's the kind of people that are going to make up my church. He says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now I want you to understand this. There have always been an elect family of God. There have always been people who had God's laws written within. But the identity of God's people in the Old Testament was based on things that could be observed with the natural eye. In other words, God's revelation was given uh, to those descendants of Abraham. But Paul said, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now what does that mean? That'd be like saying they are, they are not all Abernathy's who are of Abernathy's. That doesn't make sense, does it? But the insight we're given in that verse is that being a natural Israelite is not necessarily the same as being a child of God. And that's revealed so clearly in Romans uh, chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29. Paul says, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. You see, that's what identified God's people in the Old Testament. And when I speak of God's people, you understand that I'm not addressing necessarily those that are born again. But God's people were identified, as it says here, by being a Jew outwardly and having circumcision in the flesh. That's what identified the people who were given God's special revelation. But you know what the ultimate purpose of that was? It was so obvious that God chose to work with a certain group of people and discriminated against all others. Did you know that God discriminates? And he chose them not because they were the most impressive. He said they were the least of all people. But God chose to work with them to the exclusion of everybody else. Somebody says that's not fair. Well, was it fair when you married your wife to the exclusion of all other women? Is that fair? So we practice that all the time. Uh, God chose who to work with. 
But that was to give us the understanding as we look back now, that's to give us the understanding of the doctrine of spiritual election. So the church today is made up, as Paul says here in Romans 2, of those who are Jews inwardly and circumcision, speaking of being born again, is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You see, the real elect family of God are those that are Jews inwardly. The real elect family of God are all those who God chose before the world began in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, out of every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, and he predestinated them unto the adoption of children. Those all have spiritual life imparted to them. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Notice the language here. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will, notice the certainty of this. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And with regard to this writing of his laws in their mind and heart, he says this is not something accomplished by man. He says they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, uh, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That is, all of God's chosen people will know him. Now this describes every one of you. His laws are in your mind and in your heart. If he didn't write them there, you would have no pure motive for living right. Now listen, I didn't say you would not be living right. You would not even have the motive to live right. Now think about how 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 concerning it should be for us. If God has put his laws in your mind, if they're written in your heart and you ignore it, how dishonoring that is. You know right from wrong. You need the Bible. You need specific uh, uh, direction. Uh, Paul said God hath manifested his word through preaching. That's the normal way, the ordinary way that people of God, uh, people in the church learn his word. But the preacher is not the one who puts God's laws in your mind and who writes them in your heart. I can't do that. I can't make a person love God, fear God, or want to obey God. 
But if God has written that in your heart and mind, you better follow it. You better obey him. Don't you ignore it. Don't you quench the spirit. Don't you settle for less than striving in excellence to serve God. I want you to see this theme throughout the New Testament. You know, Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, used the phrase born again to describe the exact same uh, concept under consideration in Hebrews 8. To be born again is to be born from above. That's to have God's laws placed in your mind and in your heart. The Bible refers to it as a Spiritual creation refers to it as regeneration. In some places, it describes it as a spiritual resurrection. We sometimes refer it as we label doctrines as the effectual call of the Spirit. In the acronym TULIP, it's referred to as irresistible grace. All of those Labels and words are used to describe what is clearly presented there in Hebrews 8 about God putting His laws in our heart and in our mind. That's what happens when you're born again. You have passed from spiritual death and a dead person doesn't pick up on any thing within the realm to which they are dead if you're spiritually dead you don't pick up or relate to or feel anything in the spiritual realm in ephesians 2 10 after discussing the new birth in detail paul then says we are his workmanship this isn't talking about your natural creation. This is not talking about your physical body, although that's true. This is talking about as a spiritual person. You are blessed with a new nature. You're blessed with a new man. You still have the old man. And the problem every one of us have is, is uh, striving to, to strive to live in such a way that the new man is reigning and determining our behavior. Every one of you out there knows that to be true. You know when you do wrong, you don't feel right. You know, when you strive to live right, you feel closer to the Lord. That's the way you're supposed to feel. The world says, don't feel that way. The world says, uh, you know, you should be open to other uh, codes of morality. You should be open to other ideas. Well, see, that's, that's completely logical for a person that only has the old nature. That's the way that you expect them to think. You see, what's great about heaven 
is we'll only have one nature there, and it'll be the new man. Sin will not be a part of our thinking in heaven. But it won't be that way until we get there. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, every sermon we preach ought to have some application to every member in the church. You know, if, if you're preaching to, let's say, parents on how to bring up children, well, that's important for the parents to know. It's important for the children to know. It's important for the older people to know where they can give accurate instruction to young parents. You see, every message ought to affect us directly or indirectly. It'll, it can be utilized in some way. So I'm hesitant to ever preach a message and say this is for such and such group in the church. But I do believe there is a special application of this to the young people in the church. Several of you are in a time of transition in your life. And it's important that we understand uh, the importance of winning this battle against the old man. Part of you loves the world. Part of you enjoys fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But notice what Paul admonished the church at Philippi. Now, keep this in mind. Philippi, and if you can show me wrong, that's fine with me. But Philippi was not a church that Paul rebuked. As a matter of fact, at the, near the end of the book, chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. Paul said, this church is in good condition. Now, he didn't call Corinth his joy and crown. Matter of fact, he told them, I thank God I baptized none of you. What a contrast. There were so many errors in Corinth, I'm sure we would not have fellowship with them. And that might be appropriate for the church, but it's always appropriate for a minister to labor with the church, no matter what condition they're in. But we don't want to take it to the point that their leaven would infect our people. So we have to use wisdom. But the church at Philippi was a great encouragement to Paul. He even said in one place, verse 3 of chapter 4, I entreat thee also, true yoke fella, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. He's not speaking of women preachers here. He's saying this church is so healthy. 
uh, healthy that the women in the church help my labors in the gospel. They helped me along. They did whatever they could to help me pursue that work. You remember that widow that Elijah came across? Have you ever read the description of the room that he had? It was just a little simple, comfortable place to rest. But notice in Philippians chapter 2, this doesn't mean Paul wasn't concerned about their, uh, the possibility that they could go astray. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, listen to this now, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, wouldn't Brother Chris feel good if you obeyed him in his presence, and let's say he had to be away for a year, and he, the report came that you're obeying him even more in his absence. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Sometimes Tina and I will joke around and, you know, if the pastor's not there and there's not as many people, we'll say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. But wouldn't it be great if that could be the report of Zion Church? And I hope it is. That was the condition of the church at Philippi. But notice what he said. In spite of that, he says... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Every young person here especially, you got something you better work out. You have different issues. That doesn't mean us older people don't have issues. But you're, you're facing things that are going to have a big effect on your life. Decisions you make now can be long-term. He says, work out your own salvation. Notice this, with fear and trembling. That means you're thinking, Lord, I don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, we should fear God from the standpoint that if we step outside of His way, His will, His word, things may not go well. Did you know in the book of Hebrews it says, let me turn to that to read the, the whole verse. In Hebrews, if I can remember where it is. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 28 and 29. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. You've got something you can't be taken away. But he says let us have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now he's not going to burn you up. 
to the point that you don't exist as a child of God, but he can burn away so much dross that you'll think he's burning you up. Paul said that in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 3. You know, uh, when you purify gold, you're not, you're not harming the gold, are you? You're taking away the undesirable. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 how Paul describes this. And this is what can happen to a child of God. He says we're to build on the foundation of Christ. But look what he says. He said if we build with wood, hay, and stubble. He says in verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he himself shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Well, you may say, well, I know what I'm doing is not right, but everything's going okay. Well, God hasn't lit the fire yet. You know, there's a way that seemeth right. There, uh, there's a way that seemeth right in the man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus says, broad is the gate and wide is the way that leadeth to destruction. When you're on the, the uh, eight-lane interstate running wide open, that, that's easy traveling, isn't it? But it's where it leads to. And the problem when you're young, you think, you think you're more invincible than you do when you're my age. You will learn you're not invincible if you live very long. Matter of fact, you may reach the day when you can't even do for yourself anymore. You started out not being able to do anything for yourself, and I don't want it to end this way, but you may end up that way before your life is over that you can't do anything for yourself. But go back now to Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now notice that. God is working in you. You see, primitive Baptists don't believe that God gives you spiritual life and you can't lose that. He does it all. It's permanent. And then he just goes away to let you live your life. The Spirit has an ongoing work. And that's what's being talked about here. This is not talking about the new birth. These are people that are members of the church that Paul commended, but he's still saying, work out your salvation. God's working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's not making you do what you ought to do, but he's nudging you. Don't ignore it. The Bible speaks of those that have gone past feeling. The Bible speaks of those that have seared their conscience with a hot iron. You can desensitize yourself to sin. Now, if you're struggling with sin and you keep feeling condemned and, and it keeps bothering you and you keep backsliding but it's bothering you, your conscience is not seared. It's working good. The problem is when you can do it and it doesn't bother you. 
That's when your conscience has become desensitized. God's working in you. The decisions you make are going to have a lasting impact. Now look also at Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Peter had preached and taught them that this man they crucified was actually their Savior. And they were pierced in their heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent and be baptized. And he said, In doing so, I'm not quoting it all in, for the sake of time, but in doing so, you'll receive the gift, the unction of the Holy Ghost. You see, that's why you need to be baptized. That intensifies that sense of Him working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. See, that's really the first act of Christian obedience. And so God says, you follow me in this first act of Christian obedience. I'll give you some more. I'll give you the endowment of the Holy Spirit. So doesn't it make sense that the more you try to follow the Lord, the more sense of His Spirit He's going to give you? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and a breaking of bread and the prayers. But notice in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2. And with many other words not a few words not a general vague statement but with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves now I didn't give a title to this message but that's the title save yourselves from this untoward generation. For those of you that didn't go to Bethlehem yesterday, if you want a good commentary on that verse I just quoted, you listen to the, the sermon preached by Brother Josh Coker yesterday morning. I'm sure it'll be available on Bethlehem's website eventually. It usually takes them a while to get it uploaded. But he, he preached on Babylon, which means confusion. And he talked about how the, God's people were taken captive by Babylon because of their disobedience, but still God loved them enough. He told them, here's how you can live in Babylon and survive. And he made a spiritual application to show that that applies to us today. We are not living in a Christian nation. We're living in a, in a, in a nation uh, that as far as the leadership, and that's how we would generally label the nation we're in we're not a christian nation we're not a nation operating as a as a nation as a government we're not operating on christian principles 
Did you know Paul didn't say save this untoward generation? He didn't say go protest at the abortion clinics. If you do that on your own, that's great. As long as you do it in a peaceful way that honors God. And we should do all we can in voting and in every way God leads you individually to try to stamp out that evil. But don't feel like that as a member of the church, if you're a really good church member, you got to engage in all these activities. Paul didn't say save this untoward generation. He said save yourself from it. And see, uh, again, this applies to all of us. But you know, when, when I was young, The temptations were the same. It's just they're much more easily accessed today. You know what? When I was young, they were much more easily accessed than they were when my parents were young. You realize how much things have changed in two or three generations? You go back two or three generations and you know what you would have had in Pickens County? You would have had people that first of all worked from sunup till sundown. And then they would go home and they were so tired they wanted to eat and maybe read the Bible or visit a little bit and then go to bed. No electricity, no TV, no, no technology. You had, to, you had to really work to find a way to get in trouble. Now, when I was young, you didn't have to work to get in trouble. But it wasn't right in your face all the time. See, that's the way it is today. So he says, save yourself from this untoward generation. Now let's conclude by answering the question, how can you do this? It's up to you. I know you need the Lord's help, but it's up to you. You decide how you behave. And here's the, one of the first things that's important. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16 and verse 13. I just want one little phrase from that. It says, quit you like men. Not boys. Like men. When the psalmist was praying for the church in Psalm 144, you know, have you ever noticed what he said about uh, the, the young men? He said that, that our young men may be as plants grown up in their youth. You know what that means? That means maturity and responsibility beyond their years. One of my uncles said when he was a boy, you know, that generation that grew up during the Depression learned responsibility whether they wanted to or not. You either be responsible or don't eat. That's how it was. And if, and if you ever thought that your parents would take care of that, if you, tried to, if you tried to neglect your responsibility, you would learn that if you want to eat, you will work. 
I remember uh, hearing the story of one of, uh, of a person that grew up in the Depression, and when he was a boy, he said he, he couldn't reach the handles on the plow, so his daddy took a saw and sawed off part of the handles where he could reach them. You know, at a very young age. So notice here what it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Quit yourselves like men. Be serious. And notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. This gives some some specifics to that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now let's understand those words. Manners there means the different ways you live your life, the different ways you behave in different situations. He says, here's something that will cause the, the way you behave, that is, assuming it's a, a godly way, here's how that can be corrupted or ruined. Here's what will make that decay. Evil communications. Who you associate with. Don't think this doesn't apply to you. It applies to me. It doesn't matter what age you are. You say, well, I think I can resist it. Okay, why do you want to be with them? Even if you could resist it, but you're, you're, sorry, you're a fool if you ignore God. But even if you think you could, why do you want to be with them? Evil communications corrupt good manners. And he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's talking to church members. You know, we sometimes get discouraged. Things are no different, are they? And I I hope I'm not being too hard on you. But this is what the Bible says. He says, evil communications corrupt good manners. He says, you need to wake up. He says, some don't have the knowledge of God. He says, I'm talking about some of you. That's what Paul says. But then notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 6, I believe it is. Your glorying is not good. Know you not, that is, don't you realize that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The nature of leaven is to spread and influence until it has fully influenced the whole thing. Your glory is not good. You know what they were glorying about? Their open-minded view on morality. 
That's what they were glorying about. There was a member of the church committing fornication with his father's wife, and I believe that was his stepmother, and they were saying, you know, they were puffed up about it. That's what the Bible says, and that means that I think they were almost prideful that, you know, we're, we're just an open-minded church. Is the Bible up to date? You know, we, 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 don't, we don't want to discriminate against anyone. We don't want to judge anyone. By the way, Jesus said judge not, right? Some people show you how little they know about the Bible when they quote the Bible. I'd rather talk to someone that doesn't know the Bible than someone that quotes Bible to tear down the Bible. And that's what you're doing when you think judge not means that everything's okay and that you should never call out someone on their behavior. But notice here, he says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Then look at 2 Corinthians 6.14. This, this gets even uh, more specific. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. To yoke up with, you know, the picture there is two oxen pulling a plow. You know, you may think of two horses pulling a wagon. In other words, you're trying to do the same thing. The reason you're together is to help each other do the same thing. What sense is there in a Christian who wants to honor God hanging out with somebody that doesn't want to honor God? You're unequally yoked. And either you're going to drag them your way or they're going to drag you their way. You're not going to do your own thing. Somebody's going to do what the other person does. Be not unequally together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion? Now this really gets down to the real problem. What communion? Hath light with darkness. You profess to be a Christian. You profess to believe the Bible and want to serve God. Then why are you getting something out of being with people that don't want to follow that light? If you're getting something out of it, if you feel good about it, if you're proud of it, if, if you have communion, and communion means joint participation. It means oneness. It means you feed off each other. You strengthen each other. Well, if I'm always associating with someone that's walking in darkness, I'm feeding off them. I want to be with them. I enjoy what they enjoy. He says, what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath Christ with Belial or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Here we get back to what we started with. For ye are the temple of the living God. 
As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Regardless of how you behave, He's your God, and you're His people, and He dwells in you, and He's walking in you. Walking in you means he's active on the inside. He's telling you that you don't need to be communing with darkness. He's telling you that you don't have, there's nothing for you to yoke up with in an unbeliever. God's walking in you. And then notice in Titus how this is all tied together. And here we get some motivation with regard to these things. But notice how it begins. The same principle we've been referring to the whole time. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us. That doesn't say the gospel teaches us, though it does doesn't say reading the Bible teaches us, though it does. This says simply the grace of God. When you're born again, God's influence on you, even if you never, never read the Bible, He says the grace of God teaches you something. What does it teach you? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, I just had this thought. I want you to consider this. We're basically without excuse, aren't we? Oh, I don't, I can't, I, I have a hard time understanding the Bible. You know, I'm just not a good reader. I'm not a good reader. That was my hardest subject in school. I had to go to special classes for people that struggled with reading comprehension. But notice this, this is just, this is your responsibility before you even read the Bible. The grace of God, here's what it teaches you. You know this already on the inside. He says that you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You already know that. The Bible and preaching and the church and the fellowship with God's people will help you tremendously. But if you're born again, we can't plead ignorance. Oh, I'd like to, wouldn't you? We like to make excuses. Now notice this. Here's the motivation. We're still in the same sentence looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good work. Now that word peculiar does not mean weird or strange. Though it may lead people to think that. Peculiar literally means God's own people. A peculiar people means you are a different person. 
You're not a Christian with Christians and like the world when you're with the world. You're peculiar. I remember Brother Chris telling the story, and I fully relate how he went to a uh, political gathering and he saw Elder Wayne Crocker. And he said, I felt like there's somebody I can talk to. See, that's the way you ought to feel. That's the way you're supposed to feel. That you want to latch on to that person that's a God-fearing person. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify Him to Himself, a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now notice what He says to the young preacher Titus. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. See, I, I want to kind of apologize for what I'm preaching. But notice what Paul told Titus. He said, rebuke with all authority. It's not my authority. But if I'm telling what the Bible says, I'm telling you what God said. Let no man despise thee. Here's what that means. You remember Paul told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. That would be like whenever the church may have a mind to ordain Brother John Morgan. That would be like saying you can't preach on uh, raising children because you haven't raised any children. Show me that in the Bible. The book of Proverbs gives specific detail. Yes, your experience will help you. It will mainly help you have more compassion. Regardless of what area of life it is. When you mess up in that area as a minister, it's going to help you preach it right. You see, it doesn't matter what age the man is in the pulpit. All that matters is he telling me what the Bible says. Save yourself from this untoward generation. That means this crooked Reverse generation that will corrupt you and take you away from God. Hang out with God's people. Come to church. Get together with church members. Some of you know, and I'll conclude with this, that Brother Mason's now going to be the owner and operator of the box, you know, the fitness center. One reason I'm glad about that is because I'm going to be probably be with more primitive Baptists when I go. In other words, that's, we don't believe that's an extension of the church now. Almost said that. We don't believe that's an extension of the church. But it's great if there is some organization out there that a lot of the church members are members of. That's good, isn't it? I wish it was that way everywhere I went, you know. That there were a bunch of primitive Baptists. To go to the restaurant, there's a bunch of primitive Baptists there. That'd be great. So let's take advantage of being with the right people so that we can be better people. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.